So welcome to the Ramsden podcast. And today we've got a special guest. Uh, Robert Grillo is here um, to talk to us about uh, political activism and about the organization that he, you run the organization, right? Slaughter Free Chicago. You are the um, founder and, and you're running it, correct? Yes. So really excited to have you here, man. And uh, to get into into what what you're trying to do in Chicago and, and, and other cities as well, I believe. And um, to talk about political animal rights activism, an area that... I think I've, I I don't know too much about, and I, and I think a lot of listeners also maybe don't know too much about. Yeah. So before we, before we get into it, do you want to give us a bit of a an intro, uh, a flavor for who you are and and a bit of your background? Yeah, be happy to. Um, so in two thousand and nine, I I started out getting involved in kind of you know looking at what was out there in terms of different types of activism. Um, I think there were even cubes of truth back then, <laughs> which is going back quite a bit. Uh, there were, you know, there yeah. was PETA, there were, there were protests, there was a, a, a fur free day in Chicago that was big. Um, so I started, you know, just dabbling in different types of activism at the time. I, I had gone vegan in 2009 too. And um, mm-hmm. I didn't really, you know, at that point I was just kind of new to it and realized that uh, I had a lot to learn. And of course, I, you know, I still do, of course, every day is kind of a learning experience. But uh, I then launched a website, um, Free From Harm, before we started the nonprofit, because I thought what mm-hmm. I could bring to the movement would be um, the skills I have with website development and design. And I decided to create a, a website that could carry a lot of content and help, you know, people in our movement, as well as people just curious about the the movement and the general public as well. I just, you know, educate and inform about the various uh, subjects related to what we're doing. And that went on pretty well for for several years. Um, And I would say then starting in about 2016, after I wrote the book in 2016, the book Farm to Fable, I decided that... um, I wanted to get involved in in something more uh, hands-on, more grassroots. I was learning more about grassroots activism, uh, and I decided, you know, I really have to kind of delve into that somehow. So I thought about it for a while, and then um, it came to me, the the slaughter-free idea came to me um, in 2017 when I realized, here we are, in a city that used to actually promote itself as the slaughter capital of the world. And the Chicago Mm. Union stockyards became this huge, uh, the largest industrial meat packing and slaughter complex in the world at the time. And it flourished for several decades through the 70s. So we have this legacy of slaughter as the, the backbone, if you will, of the economy of the city and the history books. And generally speaking, most people um, project a very popular, uh, positive image of of this, Mm. of the union stockyards. And um, the reality was though, that there was a, (laughs) there was a famous writer called Upton Sinclair who wrote a book called the jungle. Right. And in the jungle was Mm. a a book that came out of him uh, getting hired as a worker inside of the union stockyards for several weeks and experiment, uh, experiencing what it was like to be a worker and really, you know, hmm. getting in, into it. Um, he found horrific stuff. Of course, if you read the book, you'd 
got a graphic depiction of what he experienced, not only for the workers, but also for the animals. And the book came out and it was quite a, uh, a you know, quite a groundswell came out of the book. And uh, so he, he showed a side of this industry uh, that, that hadn't really been exposed before. And in a way, he was a great pioneer for us because, you know, there's, there's someone over 100 years ago that was doing undercover investigation of this industry who we would never give credit mm. to, right? Because, you know, we just, we look in the last five or 10 years and that's about the, the bandwidth we have for history and <laughs> yeah. understanding our movement. Um, but this guy really, Upton sure. Sinclair was just such a, a, an innovative person and he really changed our perspective. So in a way, I kind of see ourselves almost kind of carrying the torch of what he started. Mm. And to bring it to its logical conclusion would be, you know, for us to, to uh, create a slaughter-free city in the capital, uh, in the city that used to once promote itself as the slaughter capital of the world. So it, it became for me like an experiment in grassroots activism. And, uh, mm. and also... I realized that there was a, there was a huge potential for popular support with a, a campaign like this because most people, even of course all those that eat meat, uh, the slaughter part is the the part of the industry that they would the inconvenient truth the the part they'd rather not know about talk mm -hmm. about but everyone pretty much sees the stigma attached with slaughter and the slaughter industry so mm -hmm. there was a big potential. Um, to gain a lot of public support for it, which which is appealing because a successful movement needs public support. It needs a lot of support mm -hmm. after you know it develops. Um, and the other thing you know that was appealing to me is that it's inherently intersectional, uh, in that it brings in a lot of different groups that have a lot of different grievances with this industry because it's so horrible. Um, so there's a lot of natural allies that that can come into the picture. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the the thinking behind uh, you know slaughter free. And what we're doing is mm -hmm. you know inherently political as well because I I, I think we're all doing I I think it's kind of an illusion to to make a distinction between non-political activism and, and political activism because certainly if we're asking for an end to an industry or reform of an industry or you know where some people uh, that where jobs would be transitioned where people's choices would change uh, we're talking about a political issue there's no way that we can you know get around that really um, you know for yeah. slaughter free beyond closing slaughterhouses and transitioning to a plant-based food system, we're also, we've created a model of grassroots activism or built on the, you know, hopefully have built on the successes of other movements that we've learned from. And we're teaching people that model, how to use it in towns and cities. And it's about not, more than just closing slaughterhouses, it's about learning how to exercise your constitutional rights, your rights to protest, to speech. Mm -hmm. um, it's about speaking truth to power, understanding how we confront people in power and not being afraid to do so and challenging those existing mm -hmm. power structures and understanding how powerful decision makers operate 
and how to influence them. Because ultimately, if we want the kind of change that we say we want, which is, you know, meaningful, sweeping change, we want not just like 10% of the population to go vegan, but more than that, then we have to target the, the, the powerful decision makers in our food system um, if we stand a chance mm. to, to have that kind of change. So that's kind of the, the idea behind uh, Slaughter yeah. Free. And the goal of Slaughter Free cities, Slaughter Free Chicago, Slaughter Free, which, whoever's doing it, the goal is to, to have slaughterhouses banned from, from the area that you're operating in, with the activism is operating in. Is, am I right in thinking that's, that's the end goal? Yeah. So ultimately, the, the law to, to prohibit slaughterhouses would be kind of the, the way to, to memorialize the whole effort. It would be kind of the, probably the last step. In the process, actually, it's not the last okay. step because then, after the law is passed, then there's vigilance. Then there's making sure that the law doesn't get reversed and that things don't go backwards, which is can happen in social movements. So um, it's very much towards the end, though, um, because you have to you have to have enough public support to pressure the the lawmakers um, to pass the bill, right? So it like, just like in any other situation, mm -hmm. you have to build the support for it and build the pressure, um, in order for it to work. So, so what is your tactic to do that? So from my understanding, um, or, or, or my initial kind of thoughts, uh, about this would be that, you know, to, to, to get slaughterhouses banned, I would imagine, first of all, you would have to have the majority of the people in favor of, of banning them, which which on paper probably sounds pretty easy because most people are like, oh yeah, I'm against killing, yeah. But then when it means they don't get a burger, maybe they change their mind, right? So so how what is your strategy? Uh, how is it? How does it go then? So like, what's your first point of call? Um, and you know, your step by step to lead to the point where lawmakers are pressured to to change that law. Yeah. Um, so so you mentioned you have a you have a um, a repeatable strategy, um, gra grassroots kind of a strategy for that people can copy what what is right. that exactly so i would say that we we kind of took a cue from the civil rights movement and martin luther king who um who whose strategy decided was going to be we're going to start with a smaller goal in a local area in an area where the injustice is very great um so in montgomery alabama and um where where they staged the um, you know the trying to trying to change the the bus system and make it desegregated, it was just in that town where they started with that, and so what what strategy right. was is if you start local, and you can have a, a local success, um, and you can show the repression that comes from trying to make that small change locally, a, a change that most people agreed with, um, at, at least on principle, especially in the North, um, that yeah, everybody should be able to ride the bus regardless of color. Um, but but the, the activism, the nonviolent activism, these disobedience, the sitting on the buses when they weren't supposed to be on those buses, um, it, it, the backlash was so severe and that it raised a lot of um, international media attention because um, people could see how severe the reaction was um, to something that seemed very civil and very uh, dignified to most people that 
they're not mm-hmm. leaving the bus because they feel they have a right to be on this bus. And so we took a cue from that, um, that successful movement and decided we'd start, we'd start local. We have 13 slaughterhouses in Chicago, which is down from hundreds just a few decades ago. So the industry is on its way out pretty much. Um, and so we thought it was a tangible goal to be able to uh, end slaughter here by you know, closing 13 slaughterhouses. Uh, and then once you, if, once you have a success in one city or even just a micro, like one closes down or one transitions to another kind of business, then you can start building on those smaller successes and people start realizing, hey, if they can do that in the slaughter capital of the world, which was once the slaughter capital, then maybe we could do it in Baltimore or, you know, in London or uh, Toronto. So the the idea started spreading to different cities and different city teams started popping up um, in different areas because they could see that there was there's actually a lot of support for um for closing slaughterhouses. And there's a wide range of, of constituents that don't want them for a variety of reasons. So uh, there's actually a lot, quite a bit of support. And yeah, what you mentioned about <laughs> people wanting their burger, it's interesting because they don't necessarily connect that with <laughs> slaughterhouses a lot of time. They, they, they still want that, that product, but they, they're not connecting the, li- the the closure of slaughterhouses with that often. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I guess that's uh that's kind of it's a benefit, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We will come out with you and stop these slot. Great. Yeah. Why is why are burgers so much more expensive all of a sudden? I mean, um, is that is that the the kind of way it's going? So so I guess okay. So as far as I'm understanding it, so that the goal, uh, I'm just going to repeat it back to make sure I've I've grasped this properly. So so. The goal is to is to start small. You're not going for like all slaughterhouses in the entire USA, for example. You're going city by city. And I guess as this succeeds city by city, basically it means that those cities will most likely import from other cities, right? Um, import the the meat products. And the idea is that eventually, are you hoping to like drive the price up so that people won't want it? Or are you also doing work with the public to try at the same time to try to convince them um, to, to, to not eat animal products? Like, I'm just wondering, um, yeah, like how, how does that, how does that work exactly with, cause, cause obviously if, you, if, so if Chicago bans all slaughterhouses, you know, people still, they're going to, the meat will come from somewhere else. Right. So what's the kind of um, plan around that at that point? Exactly. So that, that what a lot of people don't realize is that the opportunities for slaughterhouses are are limited, and that mm-hmm. there's um, their options are running out, so to speak. So as as okay. development continues, residential development, urban development, sprawl, if you want to call it sprawl, throughout the world um, because of the population increasing, there's less uh, there's there's less uh, properties for slaughterhouses. They're, they're specifically zoned. There's right. always a lot of controversy. Um, it, we've been helped uh, the small towns and cities uh, defeat proposed slaughterhouses. We had a really great um, defeat in Carson City, Nevada, which is kind of like a tourist town, but it's all very Republican and very mm. right wing. 
um, but we still spooked the city council to vote against it. Um, so their options are kind of running out. And it, many people think that it's, oh, they can just move somewhere else. Well, you know, it's really not that easy for them to find a property that is zoned for slaughter and then go through this incredibly uh, complex process of getting all these permits and all of these things can go wrong at all these different stages. So it's really, really not quite that easy. And um, when new slaughterhouses are proposed, we often get um, emails and requests for help to set up a campaign. So we're, you know, we're, we're not even dealing with activists at that point. We're just dealing with everyday people who don't know how to fight a, a situation like this. And we try to help them give the, try to give them the tools and direction uh, to carry out a campaign mm. against it. Cause I guess they, so this is that this would be like a, like an ordinary, most likely meat eating people that don't want a slaughterhouse in their neighborhood. Right. Um, for obvious reasons, but I guess I guess the reasons would be I don't know the sound, the smell, the seeing the animals going in. They just don't want this the kind of unpleasantry of seeing of seeing all of that, right? Would, would I be right in assuming that that's the main reason they don't want to they what they don't There's want? There's lots of reasons. Those are many of them, and property values, um, mm. quality of life, uh, okay. uh, all kinds of you know uh, problems that you know on our website, we kind of go through them, but, um, you know, people mm. change their mind too. I mean, a lot of people that have been involved in our campaign or who have, uh, you know, been eating meat all their lives or, you know, um, they're, they're not very sensitized. They're pretty desensitized to the issues. Um, mm. when they're confronted with the prospect of, of a slaughterhouse in their midst, it becomes a lot more real. The whole, they start, about the whole process and realizing that you know maybe this isn't just right maybe it's not just a problem in our town <laughs> maybe it's a bigger problem and that's that's the idea going back to the yeah. martin luther king jr idea is that a small mm -hmm. problem mm -hmm. in a local area becomes a story um, that has much broader implications because it's done everywhere. There's that injustice, that injustice exists everywhere, but we have to defeat it somewhere very specific first and successes mm. in certain areas for it then to become, to pro proliferate out from there. I think it's great that you are able to work with not just activists and vegans, uh, but actually are working with the average everyday public in a way that um, I never would have considered to, I, I never would have thought about this way of, of connecting with someone, you know, and having them open their mind to the, to a different way of living just from the fact that they don't want to see trucks, loads of animals going into a building next to their house every day. Like I, I never actually, uh, you know, made that, uh, click myself for that. Wow. That's a real, that'd be a really good way to reach people. So it's, that's really great that they're coming to you even and, and saying, you know, help us, help us do this. Uh, it's, um, it's, it offers a great opportunity for, for you and your, and your organization to, to, you know, explain to them, yeah, yeah, we can help. And by the way, have you thought about how this goes in the rest of the world and how you don't need to pay for it? Actually, you know, they wouldn't be opening it if you, if you weren't paying for it. Yeah, so it's a really, it's, it's a great way to open that. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a door opener a bit. Uh, mm. the, the other thing, too, that I think is such an important thing for us to realize is that 
we are so small compared to like if you study social movements and you 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 there's a there's a great uh, piece written by Bill Moyers in the '70s called the Movement Action Plan, and it's the eight stages of a social movement that he outlines. And you know it's not a perfect like template that everybody uses or that every social movement. Um, plays out the same way, but it is a very useful way of looking at how social movements evolve um, in eight stages. And, you know, we, we don't have the public support that we need. Um, and we have to find ways of, we don't necessarily have to agree. And we don't even, we don't even have to um, build allies with people that share our values. But if we have a campaign to close a specific business like a slaughterhouse or make a city slaughter free all we need our allies to do is to agree to the end goal that that we're all better off without those slaughterhouses in the city and they mm. could be uh, all different yeah. kinds of other you know they, they could be a, a, other movements but we really um we don't have the numbers that we need to succeed if we if we look at social movements from you know from from a broader lens, when we look at what's required of the successful ones to, to get big enough, um, we, we simply aren't anywhere near where we need to be in terms of like inf infiltrating and, and influencing um, the public at large. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the way to get there is through the powerful people in our food system, because let them do the work for us. They're the ones that have the marketing machines and the media on their side, they need to be the uh, spokespeople. We need to influence them uh, to to make, you know, the, the decisions they make will affect millions of, of human lives and potentially millions of animals. So we need, we need to really um, target those powerful people. I actually was reminded of a, of a part of your book, actually, when you were speaking about how so many people aren't in on, on in support of of the goals you know of of uh, for animal rights and uh, switching to a plant-based food system and it's because of the well i mean it's indoctrination but the way you put it in your book was was a much more advanced and detailed um version of, of you know normally we say people are indoctrinated but you really really went into like exactly what that means and i, I especially liked the example you gave about that um strategist uh, antonio gramsci who and, and this this was really good so i'm going to explain it for, yeah. for those who have not read the book but it was talking about um basically how how fascism um has succeeded uh, and basically it's not it's not through brute strength and just just force it's actually through ideas and the the ideas is where is where the power comes from it's that you can if you play if you imprint an idea on people um through all the different means that you can do this you know there's many many especially today's world there's so many ways to get an idea out and and, and onto people and fictional ideas like happy cows in the fields and happy chickens in the fields and all these things uh that's where the power is not just brute force um actually that that that's more powerful isn't it and um that was a really interesting uh the and the examples of um also actually i don't know how how uh controversial you want to get but there was a story from the uh you put in, in your book about this nazi concentration camp where the nazis were filming their own documentaries with 
these prisoners mm. looking all clean and well-dressed and happy and then killing them uh, a couple of days later, maybe, you know, after the documentary was made. So, you know, it, it's, it's eerily similar to what farmers do with their animals, right? They take videos and, and fields or whatever, and, and then they send them off to a slaughterhouse a couple of days later, once they've used them for marketing purposes and now they can be sold for. So it's, it's, it's no surprise that people aren't necessarily fully supportive as, as they should be because we're, we're dealing with billions of dollars of, of marketing the, from the other, other side. Right. And you, you've actually worked on that side too. Um, that uh, you, you were working, um, um, for marketing yeah. for uh, McDonald's happy meals and, um, craft food. So you, so you know how this works as well, right? You, you actually have seen it firsthand, how they, they indoctrinate through these images and, and these things. Tell tell us tell me tell us a bit about that actually what what you learned from that um, that experience. Yeah, well, uh, it was a different time in my. It feels like a different lifetime. It's been so long. It yeah. was probably you know. So I'm in my mid fifties now. It was my mid twenties. So it was about thirty years ago when I was involved in this work. And at the time, I was a freelancer, yeah. and you could make decent money freelancing at different ad agencies and creative agencies around the city. And so mm -hmm. I found myself working for one place um, that had like United Airlines as a client and McDonald's and Kraft Foods. And, um, you know, to be in some of these meetings and, and um, listen to the, uh, the discussion, uh, you know, what you find is that they've really studied this. They, they really understand and there's, there's something to learn here, I think, from them, as evil as it can be. <laughs> uh, hmm. They really yeah. have seized upon the notion that they're selling ideas, not products. That the, the, the product is something that you purchase because you believe in what it stands for. And that's the most important takeaway, mm -hmm. that we as activists or people that are in their community uh, should, should glean from that, is that... I, we're not we're not selling um, products, and we can't we, we can't rely on the market to to make the kind of change that we want. I had an interesting discussion, kind of an ongoing discussion with someone that I like a lot, um, and you know we were talking about you know the plant based food uh, market and how it's grown, mm -hmm. and what were the reasons for that and. And, and she said, well, it's very well documented that why the, the plant-based food market has grown. And I said, really? Show me your sources. <laughs> I'm kind of interested in that. And, and then it got into a discussion that what I started to realize is she was only looking through this very narrow lens of what the market and the business community thinks is the reasons for um, the growth in the plant-based food market. Not the... Uh, the more vast and complex um, influences um, for as, as activism, you know, activism, decades of activism that has influenced people's hearts and minds and decisions. Um, she wasn't factoring all of that stuff in, which isn't really impossible to measure. Mm. I mean, we could waste a lot of time yeah. trying to, yeah. to figure that out. And we can do market research surveys um, but those are really quite shall a shallow way to understand the the more complex and uh, social change that we're looking for. 
Uh, every social, major social change has required a social movement a very, with a lot of strategy and a lot of discipline and a lot of organization. And the market doesn't know anything about that. <laughs> you know, it's just looking at the results and saying, okay, how, do, how can we survey consumers so we can help them make, you know, buy more diapers or buy more cars? That, that's not what we're doing. We shouldn't you that's why we don't need those tools because they they're not designed for for what we're doing really. so intuitively you you feel that the the rise of of plant-based food um do you do you believe that a good chunk of it has come from from animal rights activism well, and, yeah and, i mean there's the um, proof of that okay look at the okay. humane washing and greenwashing. look at the millions that are spent and appealing to people's sensibilities over their concern for the environment and their concern for animal suffering. If it was true mm. that people didn't care, or if we weren't having an impact, then none of this would be necessary. But the fact is that, that mm. um, more and more consumers are demanding, expecting, um, hoping for uh, products that are that result in less suffering and less ecological damage. Mm. So if, you know, there's the proof yeah. right there that we have, you know, we're, we're looking at this, this company in California that sells chicken uh, at a, an incredible cost. They, you know, the luxury chicken. Mm -hmm. But the reality is um, the chickens are no different. The situation is no different. The way they're raised and slaughtered, it's really horrible. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're trying to bust that, expose that myth that they've created, that marketing myth. Um, sure. But yeah, I mean, the whole growth in humane and green advertising is the, is the testament we need that people, that people care and, you know, want those. They Again, we're selling beliefs. Do you think that some of this could have come from, because... So in recent years, especially in the last, uh, oh, I guess the last five, between five to eight years, let's say, people, there's been a big uptick in people caring about what other people think about like how virtuous they are, right? There's a lot of virtue signaling that's been popping up across social media. People want you to know that they support this and that, and they want you to know that they did something special today. And whereas I don't, I don't remember it being like that before. Yeah. You know, you had the odd, odd person that would show off about something, but but now everyone wants to, you know, they have in their Twitter bios, you know, everything they support. Like it, it's crazy sometimes, like how many things that you can fit in that. Um, so so do you do you think this this may, maybe being like a do you think this is factored into that? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Do you think this is a new, just one of many identities people have picked up for better or for worse? Obviously, in this case, it's definitely for better. Um, right. But yeah, do you think it's it's a it's a, an overall kind of change that's that's come and animal animals have have come along with that as well as all these other um, things that people want to kind of show virtue in? Oh yeah, absolutely, and perhaps it's also mm. somewhat narcissistic because we have some problem with right. narcissism. But yeah. even then, um, you know, like the fact that this if this idea has become popularized that we we are good people and we want to be perceived as good people um then mm. then that's quite a, a kind of accomplishment and that comes from that came from decades of of uh, 
of activism that is disruptive, that created tension. Um, every, you know, one point I want to make is that every social movement gets a lot more, it gets a lot heavier and, and uh, messier and more intense before it gets better. And so we can't expect to make a, a major shift in people's hearts and minds without um, disrupting their thought process. And so that's what advertising does. It disrupts us with TV and internet ads with things that we initially think we don't want, we don't give a shit about. But when we see the ad enough several times, we realize, oh, I need that. That's disruption successfully being used to change our minds about something. Advertising does it all the time. They got it from social psychology. And we should use it too. <laughs> because it's strategic. It it works. It's not it's not a it's not a weapon for bad unless you're doing it for bad reasons, right? This is the thing. If you can it's a strategy that can be used for good. Um it's I guess it's suppose it's kind of like people breaking out of bad habits. It's, it's, that's a good way to do it is by constantly exposing them to something that's good. And then you'd hope that, okay, well, they pick up a good habit then and, and then the bad habit goes away. It's, right. it's simple stuff, but unfortunately, like you said, um, advertisers use it in a negative way. They get you to pick up things that you, you don't want yeah. or need. Right. Right. Completely. Uh, yeah. And how, how are you? So, so what's, um, give us some examples of the kind of actions that, your organization does that in in that in that light you know yeah. like um civil disobedience and because i i know i know of um dxe direct action everywhere i've seen what they do um i've done some of the actions with them as well so but but um yeah give us a, an idea of what of the kind of things that your groups are doing sure so um you know one of the one of the things we did was uh, i'll i'll tell you about a, a campaign we had going um we always look for when when we have a campaign we're always looking for all of the stakeholders all of the people that have an interest in that brand or so in, in one case it was they're building this big multi-million dollar slaughterhouse in wisconsin and you know we really studied they had a lot of different people working on this um who are the suppliers who who's the of uh, uh investors who are the insurers? Who are the um, supplier? Who are, will be the suppliers of the animals? And looking at all these different things. Well, what we learned was that the company had been sold to an investment firm in Texas. Uh, a huge majority is now owned, so they actually called the shots. And when we learned that, we decided to, okay. to target the uh, CEO of that investment firm. And for a year, we called and emailed him and did social media blasts, um, and we got no response. But then mm -hmm. uh, we decided our Slaughter Free Dallas people got together, and we decided to do a protest at his home, at his mansion, I should say. Uh, right. And um, that really rattled things. Um, I called him a couple mm -hmm. of days after that, and it was the first time he ever took my phone call. And the first 10 minutes call, <laughs> okay. the first 10 minutes of the call were him complaining about our tactics. It was very ironic. The only right. reason why he took the call was because we had to resort to embarrassing him in front of his neighbors to show him that what he's investing in is, is wrong. You know, that the $74 million could be better invested in something else. 
And so it took embarrassing him in front of his neighbors um, for him to, to even take our call. And we had a very the we had a very productive call. It lasted about forty five minutes, and I talked to him. We listened to each other. I listened to his point of view. He listened to me. I told him about all the different reasons why I think it's a bad idea to invest in the slaughterhouse industry, and gave him other options. And at the end, he um, he said, "I I really um, I, I respect what you're doing very much," um, and. Uh, Maybe we can continue the conversation. We'll definitely take what you said into consideration, this and that. And then mm. two days later, the CEO announced that they were divesting from the $74 million slaughterhouse in Wisconsin and any slaughter uh, investment in the future, no more investment in the industry. And that was it. Wow. Uh, we didn't <laughs> hear anything more from them, but um, that was a stunning upset. You know, um, an yeah. example of how yeah, we yeah. can influence investors and um, people with the money in this industry that are investing in this industry, mm-hmm. and a small group of people can can make a big change and send a message to their investors and to the industry that this is no longer business as usual. And that wouldn't have taken you know that many resources either. I mean, it's it's a lot. It's online work, obviously. It takes it takes. Obviously, on your side, there's a lot of strategy, don't get me wrong. But I mean, for the average, like me, an activist out there, it's, it's not really such hard work to, to do it. You know, a tweet storm or whatever, just get loads of you tweet. And, and then the people who are local, okay, just go to his house for, you know, it wouldn't take many trips outside of his house before he's like, okay, okay, I don't want to do I'm going to speak to someone, please. Someone, I need to speak to somebody on the phone. You know, he's not going to stand it for months, is he, right? He's not, I don't think anyone's so stubborn to be able to handle that outside their house for... So that that's really um, yeah wow that's a really um, amazing um, result actually for for what seems like yeah like I said a pretty simple strategy a pretty simple um, move from from your from your groups um, so so right now I'm I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate because I think it's only fair that we 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 represent some of the the opinions that maybe I mean obviously we agree on on practically everything here and and I'm fully supportive of all of this but there are people out there who definitely aren't and and I think it's it's only fair we we give some airtime to a bit of a few of these comments that are going to most likely crop up so first off um with the example you just gave I guess you probably had this and or, you know and and I guess you have this a lot when you do these things but when people are saying they think this is this is harassment, right? This is this uh, kind of um, barrage of online um, action, and then going to the, the guy's house, they would say this is harassing the person, and and you know vegans vegans harass people. They say vegans harass people, and then they get upset when they get harassed back. For example, just just recently, Tash Peterson, who's an activist in Australia, she she um, was sent a picture of a decapitated pig's head with her name stuck to the head. And she went and confronted the person who did it. And I posted this video just today. And already in the comments, someone said, she goes around harassing people. She can't complain when she gets harassed. Right? So this is the, you know, I mean, this is the kind of attitude we're dealing with. So how how do you respond to that? You know, someone who's maybe not that bad, like not, not a complete idiot, like anti-vegan, but maybe just a general member of the public who's like, isn't this harassment, what you guys are doing? Like, what, what would you respond to that? Yeah, there's always going to be people that... Um that don't see the value in disruptive 
confrontational action. But as I said before, no other mm. social movement in history has ever succeeded without heightening the conflict. It's what uh, Erica Chenoweth, um, the social scientist who has studied social movements uh, all hun- the, in the last hundred years, it's what she calls constructive conflict. And the idea is that mm. you can't even get the issue on the table until you create enough tension where people are all of a sudden feel forced to, that they have to talk about it. So like uh, an example in history is when the suffragette, uh, famous suffragette activist spit in the eye of a police officer. That was a strategic move. Um, we don't do that by the way, but, um, but that was a strategic move to get the issue uh, into international headlines to get people. And then a, a, a huge discussion ensued um, about women's rights to vote. Um, So uh, we do things that are symbolic, that are daring, that are actually quite risky for ourselves, um, knowing that it will raise the the discussion, uh, the the public discussion. Mm -hmm. Now, the trick is to do something that the public finds um, kind of interesting and thought-provoking rather than something they can dismiss mm. as silly or stupid. You want to do mm-hmm. things that evoke okay. uh, their emotions and get them to think and, and say, wow, that's kind of a powerful action. That's kind of a powerful move confronting the mayor of Chicago in that way. Um, you want mm. their sympathy. Um, you want their respect that you had the audacity to interrupt that person, that powerful person's speech. And while she's talking about how great she uh, has solved crime in the city and all these other things, you disrupt her and with something that yes, some people will be very upset about, but many people will walk away and say that took a lot of courage to do that. And you know what, by the way, that person's message is right. There shouldn't be slaughterhouses in 2022. Um, if the city is serious mm-hmm. about its green initiative, its climate uh, emergency declaration, then it's going to do X, Y, and Z. And yeah, that person's right. So that's that, that's the mm-hmm. outcome we want. Of course, we're not going to get it all the time. Mm-hmm. And the press is always going to turn us into something of, they're always going to look for ways of, of making us look silly. But uh, yeah, yeah, of course. When we control the narrative and when we do things that are interesting and innovative and creative rather than repetitive, then um, then we start building the, the support, the public support we need. And um, that's ultimately mm-hmm. what what this is about. I'm guessing you wouldn't be a fan of, um, for example, the uh, vegetable party protests that were happening in England uh, a year or so ago. Don't, did you see that at all? Uh, people dancing around dressed as vegetables um, to try to, I don't, I don't, it was, it was to raise awareness. So would that be an example of something you would say is, uh, is going to be written off as stupid and silly by most people? Am I right in thinking that's, or, or would you say that there's some, even some benefit to something like that? I, I personally, I can put myself out there on first, if you like, I was very critical of that. I actually publicly said that this was really dumb and, and I don't, you know, I, I maybe, maybe it, Maybe a few people were interested, sure, but I think the majority were just like, "What? Why? <laughs> what is yeah. this?" You know. I didn't see it. Um, yeah. You know, 
I was listening to something every day. I'm listening to new like podcasts and stuff, but I'm trying to, I'm a student. I'm yeah. trying to be the student of, of social change and activism and learn every day from others. And, you know, on the one hand, uh, we want to be respected. We want, uh, we want uh, to rally a core base. We need a, we need more activists and we need more committed, disciplined people. And it's a serious topic. And on the other hand, we need to be very, um, uh, we, we need to be letting people in. So we need to find ways of making things, um, that, you know, like older people, uh, which can be incredible activists, people that are retired and have a lot of ha uh, time on their hands. Um, people mm -hmm. might yeah. feel that in some social movements, uh, people brought their families um, and kids. Uh, mm -hmm. So when everyday people start participating in the social movement, um, we start to grow a lot. And if we could find ways to do that mm. more, um, then we we succeed in building more public support. I don't know if dressing up in vegetable mm. costumes achieves that, but <laughs> yeah, maybe hey, oh. I, that's, that's the best argument for it that I've heard yet. Like if that, if that was the goal, it was to open it up and make a family friendly event, have more that, that then fair enough. Okay. You've won me <laughs> over. If that's why they did it, then uh, I, I would consider hosting my own vegetable party protest uh, to get <laughs> based, based on that. It's as a maybe an eggplant yeah <laughs> yeah definitely um no yeah that, that's that's the most convincing argument and then i've got another um contrary opinion for you uh, you know one that i imagine would come up a lot so so all right earlier on we did identify most people uh, most reasonable people don't want a slaughterhouse in their backyard they they don't want one anywhere near where they live uh, they don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to smell it. For obvious reasons, most people are in that boat. However, there, there may be some people out there that um, are not happy with the city losing all their slaughterhouses because of the things I mentioned earlier, because they don't, they feel like their freedom is being infringed on, right? They say, I want to eat meat. So why are you getting rid of all these slaughterhouses? And also, you also mentioned with these powerful people to get those people to, to start doing the work. Um, for the organization because they can influence and stuff. These kind of people who are, would say you're infringing on my freedom would also, and I think sometimes they have a point here, would call out that a lot of these powerful people, politicians, are, are monstrous hypocrites when it comes to what they say versus what they do. And, um, and you know, I, although I think these people I'm referring to oftentimes are just screaming and shouting about not not too much, this is one point that I have actually had to agree on them with them on a few times that, okay, this, like, for example, Eric Adams, um, you know, was pushing all this plant-based stuff. And then he revealed he's eating fish at really fancy restaurants, you know, and it, it really doesn't look good, does it, when he's like doing that. So, so yeah, I guess two, two pronged kind of um, question here. Firstly, how do you deal with people who say it's my freedom and stop trying to shut down slaughterhouses? I want them to stay here so I can get my cheap meat. And two, how do you deal with, um, say, like if you're influencing these politicians and how do you handle the fact that some of them are doing this for political points and actually, you know, people might call them out for being massive hypocrites because they don't practice what they preach? Right. Um, so to the first point, I think that we don't deal with, um, I mean, we should make the best arguments that we can. 
and put out the best information mm -hmm. that we can and use the best sources that we find. But uh, we shouldn't be mm -hmm. focusing on people that um, are antagonistic to, uh, to our cause or our campaign. We should be focusing on people that are somewhat either remotely or very sympathetic, people that are likely to, to become involved because just like they do in marketing and advertising, you, you focus on your target market, not your laggards, not the people that will never buy your product or maybe they'll start buying it 50 years from now, right? So um, there's... That's great advice. That's great advice, by the way. I think so many people out there, both activists and non-activists, waste their time on people that have absolutely no intention of listening to them. It's such it's such good advice. Yeah. yeah. Um, second yeah, part yeah. Of, of what you were saying uh, is in terms of freedom, not taking away an industry. I mean, this is the, the backlash that we get, that every social movement, that every activist group gets from demanding that a certain injustice be corrected um, faces the same kind of backlash. Uh, we're not unique in that. We should, if we, if we look at a broader perspective on this, we find community with a lot of other activism groups, a lot of others fighting for justice. And what we realize is um, that we're all dealing with that. And, uh, do you have the right, do you feel that you have the right to oppress or retaliate or harm someone else? And that's kind of ultimately what it, what it, what it boils down to, whether it's a movement mm. or uh, another one. And so um, we have to make the case for why, why the justice needs to be corrected and focus on our talking points uh, and not, mm -hmm. uh, and if they if they feel like they have the freedom or need to have the freedom to harm, I think we seriously, uh, you know, question the idea that someone has a right to harm or a right to benefit okay. or profit from the harm when there's so many other, even more lucrative ways of uh, running a business that's slaughter free. And and how about these uh, these politicians then? Um... Yeah, how, how would you deal with this kind of? This is the only only valid criticism I'd say. If there were any that these, these people tend to bring up, I'd say this one I kind of sympathize with because it's not it's not nice to be told you shouldn't be doing something by someone who's doing that thing, which tends to be the case with most politicians, right? Well, here's the thing. Let me give you a concrete example. We're dealing with a situation in mm -hmm. Los Angeles where there was a ban proposed, a ban on slaughterhouses in LA proposed in 2020. Mm -hmm. It ended up in the committee um, where it gets voted on first. And there's three people in that committee and the chair of that committee controls what gets on the agenda and what gets voted on. And his name is council member Lee. Um, Lee has um, uh, decided that he's going to try to kill this, this uh, motion. And um, so you know, what we've done here is we've launched a pressure campaign to expose um, his his attempt to kill this. Did he make some kind of deal with the Chicken Slaughter mm -hmm. Association that we don't know about? You know, what is mm -hmm. it that, and why is he protecting 20 business owners 
over entire communities that he claims to care about. In other words, if you truly are a progressive mm -hmm. person that cares about these marginalized communities and their, the, the environment in which they live, um, why are you throwing them under the bus just to protect these 20 business owners? And ultimately, you know, we, mm -hmm. we put the pressure back on uh, the target of our campaign when they try to make us look mm -hmm. like uh, we're dividing, um, you know, we're, we're harming these business owners. No, the city has programs to mm -hmm. help, you know, to help business owners transition and in many other ways. So I uh, use those resources and for the greater good mm -hmm. and for all the marginalized people that you claim to care about, help uh, vote for it just for them, if nothing else. Don't protect mm -hmm. these 20 business owners. Yeah. That would be our company. Got it. Got it. Got it. And, and so, uh, and for the people, so, so, and, and then flipping that around. So we got, this guy would, is acting hypocritically against you. Um, what about when they're acting hypocritically, but in favor of you? What about when a politician is, is supportive of you, but people start to point out that this politician's hypocritical in their own personal life? So for example, a politician is, which I'm sure it happens like Eric Adams, for example, who would probably, probably is supporting, uh, I don't know if he already is behind you, but he would be, I guess, where he'd say, yeah, let's, let's get rid of slaughterhouses. And then, you know, the dude's off eating animal products and, you know, it was at least fish, but who knows what else. And imagine, imagine someone is, you know, eating steaks and meat and barbecue, but also fighting to end slaughterhouses. Um, people might call a double standard here and say, well, it's one rule for them, the rich, and one rule for us, the poor. Um, this is a criticism I've seen come up that I, I do empathize with. Um, I, have you had this before? And, and if so, how, how would you combat that situation? So let me make sure I understand this. So what you're saying is yeah. that they're going to frame that so that the politician is trying to frame the issue is that that we are somehow against that community um no sorry no 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 i think so so what i mean is i said so i'm referring to earlier i'll, I'll try and like so you said uh, you want to influence powerful people because they already can influence a lot of people right so my 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 um worry with that or what i've seen already with that is that some powerful people would support you because they believe, because whatever the reason is, right? Maybe it's for virtue signaling. Maybe they genuinely believe right. that, you know, we should have slaughter-free cities, right? So they're supporting you. They're promoting you. They're trying to push bills and trying to, you know, work on your behalf. But then they themselves are eating meat, um, eating all animal products, you know, going to fancy restaurants and things like that. As most of these powerful people right. do, the, the general member of the public is going to feel very, um, you know, probably probably quite angry about that or some of them would to say this rich elite person is telling me and trying to shut down you know these these slaughterhouses and telling us to stop eating meat or whatever but they go and dine at these fancy restaurants and eat all this meat um it's one rule for them and another rule for us you know um i, I feel like a lot of the times vegans and vegan at least plant-based diet vegan organizations vegan companies we kind of get lumped in with these kind of elites and this elite hypocrisy right. Um, it, cause, because of these elite people tend to, you know, they push climate diets like plant-based diets, but they don't eat it themselves. Yeah. Right. So I, I'm wondering, have you come across this and, and this kind of criticism because you're in the political okay. world, right? So people are going to, you know, pull this kind of thing up, right? The, the attention is on the 
the, the, that person, that public figure, it doesn't, mm. we don't automatically get blamed because they made a bad decision. So I think the okay. public recognizes okay. that we're trying to advance a certain objective or goal using that mm. political figure or public figure because they have the power to help us do that. Um, but that mm. doesn't make us responsible for like all of their behavior outside of their role as a public figure. I mean, you know, I mean, we can't, we can't possibly control that. Um, we, we could say, Hey, that's not a great thing that they did that. That looks like a step backwards. Um, but sure. yeah, I mean, sure. it, I don't, we've never confronted a situation where, um, you know, people hold us accountable for, um, a bad decision that a public figure made. So, for example, like That's good, we had though. a sponsor for our bill in Chicago to ban slaughterhouses, and he dropped out. Mm. He he dropped out of sponsorship. Okay, um, which you could say, you know, could be a bad reflection on us. But um, I guess the way we tried to frame it is like this guy didn't have the the courage to continue, even when he faced the odds. Like even when he faced, mm. you know obstacles and pushback he could have fought for it because it's the right thing to do um but he dropped out so we kind of okay. you know it depends on how you frame it but i again i don't think people hold us sure, accountable sure. for what other powerful people do yeah that's that's it's good it's it you'd hope people would operate with some common sense with this kind of thing but um i've yeah, I've I've seen I've seen a lack of it also. So I was curious to know if you'd faced that at all. And and no, it's it's great that you 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 know have a way around that. It it sounds great, honestly. You, the organization, how you run it, the strategies. It sounds like it's it's very well thought out. I mean, obviously, I read your book as well, Farm to Fable. So I I know you know your shit. Uh, <laughs> so it was it was really good reading that, and and I highly recommend it. And we've not got into it too much today. But honestly, I think I think we could do an entire podcast on just the book. I mean, it, probably a three or four hour podcast even because there's so much in there. To um, it, it really is uh, a great book. So for anyone who's, you know, let, let's say some people out there like casual fans of of, of Earthling Ed or, or some videos of myself doing outreach and things like that. And and if you're wondering where where are these, you know, where do you get these kind of arguments from? How do you know what to say? You could go ahead and, and get Earthling Ed's ebook. That's true. But if you want to go really, really deep into this, and and you know, I'm talking way more levels deep than um, any book I've seen, then I highly recommend Robert's book, Farm to Fable, because um, you'll come out of it much more knowledgeable on on all of the counterpoints and all of the arguments. And yeah, I I, I was reading it, man, and honestly, it was it's it's so in depth. Um, it's it's by far the best um, I've seen. Uh, dealing with all of these common, you know, things that we come across as, as animal rights and, you know, and, and vegans. So it's, it's, it's really well done. And it's from, it's from 2016, right? Yeah. It came out in 2016. You wrote it. And uh, yeah, it's, but it's, 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 it's aged very well because it's still completely relevant. Like there's nothing, in my opinion, there's not, there was nothing dated in it at all. It's, it's all hundred percent relevant for today as well. Really good. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. That's quite, thanks for the, positive feedback i feel like you know being seven years old there's a lot of room for improvement and um like some of my mm -hmm. thoughts have evolved since then too but um you know you can't really you, you can't really you just kind of have to let it be for what it is like it was it's a 
<laughs> piece that I wrote at the time in my life, and maybe I'll update it someday. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to look at it again and kind of update it, do a new edition. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I especially liked, um, you used a few pop culture references as well. I especially liked using the uh, Jesse in Breaking Bad um, example to, to talk about judgment, you know, and, and people say, oh, you're judging me. And it's like using that example as like, a, it, you know, it, it was it, little things like that, I think really helped it along as well. And especially more serious examples, like I said earlier, the one with the Nazis, when you're talking about the um, domestication of, of turkeys, um, and actually an indigenous, that's something I'd, I'd love to get into actually. And, and a more, cause the, the whole people, one of the, one of the arguments that's really getting some steam now is this whole veganism as anti-indigenous and indigenous is, is romanticized as this beautiful way of living. But your book absolutely destroys that narrative. Um, I, I've, I've, again, I've not seen such a thorough destruction of nonsense as I have in your book, in some sections, that one was brilliant. Um, talking about you know, um, I'll, I'll summarize the Turkey part just for people to know that basically uh, indigenous tribes domesticated uh, turkeys, but not for food, for fashion. So the argument that indigenous people only do what they need to do to survive it. Well, no, that's not necessarily true that that as native uh, native Americans domesticated turkeys just take their feathers off them and use them for fashion. So you know, just there's, there's lots of great paragraphs like that and great points in there. So I highly recommend it really do. And, um, thank you for coming on. It's been, it's been great to learn about your organization. There's definitely a, probably another four or five hours we could get into, <laughs> but it, 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 in a nutshell, it was really good to understand what you're doing. And is there anything I've missed that you'd like to get to, to, uh, mention before we, uh, close off? Yeah. I would just say if people are interested in slaughter free cities, they can, um, <clears throat> go to slaughterfreecities.org and um, sign up there. They could follow us on Facebook as well. Um, but yeah, there's lots of different opportunities to get involved. <clears throat> there's a role for everyone. That's the, the, in our community of activism, there's a role for people who cook, for who, who nurture, who do music and um, provide um, pleasure and entertainment, as well as people on the front lines doing um, to more risky stuff. Um, but there's a role for everybody and, uh, you know, getting involved can, can mean a lot of different things to different people. So would love to encourage people to, to learn more about it. I'm sure people will do. You've, um, very, really impressed me with everything that you're doing. I, I think it's great. I think you're doing amazing work and thank you for doing it. Um, I, 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 I know I have, I have a, a kind of inkling of how difficult it is, you know, I've, I've, I've not organized at the, quite the level you have, but I've been involved in a little bit of this and I know how nerve wracking and tough it yeah. is and people, you know, people's jobs and careers and lives and mental health is on the line. And so, so, you know, I really, you know, it, it's really impressive what you're doing and, um, yeah, you got all my, all my support. I look forward to seeing what, what you'll be, you'll be up to next and I'll definitely be following across all the social media. We'll stay in contact as yeah, well. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks for, thanks so much for having me on, David.